Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumber from Altos Performance, and our guest this week is currently the number six player in the world. He's formerly a number one, a master's champ, has 31 professional victories, Adam Scott. And even as we've set a pretty high standard of guests lately, I think Cam and I were both especially excited for this chat. We're both big fans of his. I know being the first Australian to win a master's puts him in rarefied air in the eyes of Cameron and all Australians. And Adam is obviously really well known for having one of the most coveted swings in golf. So it was fun for us to talk a little bit about technique, how he developed his swing, how he continues to refine it. But the real nuggets from this conversation came when we discussed Adam's mindset and the lessons that he's learned from sustaining this long career despite spending over 400 weeks in the top 10 in the world he hasn't been without some ups and downs and he discusses those natural ebbs and flows with the kind of maturity and wisdom and perspective that only comes from spending nearly 20 years at the top of the game cam was re-listening as we did some posts and editing and and he told me that he thinks that this might be the best interview that we've had to date so we're excited to share it with you after a quick word from total golf trainer please enjoy episode 67 of the earn your edge podcast with adam scott The Total Golf Trainer line of products are designed to provide instant feedback that's custom to your swing. Learn to reinforce your lessons with drills that you can do at home even while we're stuck inside. The Total Golf Trainer 3.0 kit is an all-in-one training kit for beginners all the way to professionals. We use it daily to solve all sorts of issues at Altus. The guys at TGT have provided a list of the most common ailments that the 3.0 kit can help solve. So if any of these sound familiar, you certainly need to check it out. If you've got club face issues, whether that be extremely open or closed, takeaway issues, especially one that gets inside early. If you're too laid off or across the line at the top of the backswing, it can help with battling loss of width or if you're trying to shorten your backswing. And of course, the dreaded over the top, casting, early release, loss of posture, early extension, flipping, all those things the 3.0 kit can help you solve. It's the first multi-tool training aid that is completely custom to your golf swing. With the easy to use adjustable training rods, you may increase and decrease the difficulty for use by any level of golfer from juniors to beginners to advanced pros. Get instant feedback with Total Golf Trainer. It's all you need to learn your process and own your swing. To learn more and watch the videos on how to improve your game with the Total Golf Trainer, visit TotalGolfTrainer.com or find them on social media at TotalGolfTrain. So let's lead off with a question on how you're spending your time back home. You know, here in Dallas, we're still able to get out on the golf courses, I guess, depending upon what county you're in. We're still able to do a little bit of coaching in person, granted from about 10 to 12 feet away. So there's certainly no guided guided rehearsals that are going on. And then most of our, our instruction right now, our coaching right now is done online. So uh, are you able to get out and practice and play still in Australia or you're pretty much on lockdown and surfing all the time? Most of the courses in the area near me are still open, although with a lot of restrictions like everywhere. But I am enjoying getting out there. I've got out there probably once a week, I'd say. At the moment, it's been uh, a fair bit of time in the house. But playing in two bowls only is the upside of all this. I think it right, golf so is much, much quicker. Yeah, you, it's hard to play in over three hours. So that's popular with a lot of people. But um, I've been out there a bit. Just trying to keep moving really is all I've been doing. Hopefully not going backwards as far as physically. It feels like when I get out there, I still know what I'm doing. Although I can tell the feels are when you get there, you know, you've got 74 yards and you hit about 86. <laughs> the, feel, the feels, are, they go quickly. 
However, I feel like the body's still moving good at this point. So hopefully I'm doing enough to kind of stay where I need to be for when we come back. Hey, Adam, one of the earliest parts of these conversations that we typically have is when we discuss a player's origin story and how they developed. And the part that I'm most curious about is to know at what age were you when you were cognizant of or you recognized that others were raving or gushing about the quality of your golf swing? I think when I started breaking par somewhat regularly, I mean, not all the time, obviously, it was pretty inconsistent. But, you know, I was about 13 or 14 when I got really good for my age and could break par. And I think I was, I shot 69 when I was 13 and, you know, playing in the Saturday comp or something with grown-ups for me at the time, they were they're quite blown away by a kid who can play a little bit like a shrunken tour pro, you know, because <laughs> I've always been a pretty good ball striker. It was, it was a lot of fairways and a lot of greens when I was a junior golfer. And, uh, I think that's why my short game was a late developer. Cause I didn't chip them have to chip very much when I was a kid. I seemed to hit a lot of greens all the time, but, um, yeah, I think it was around then when, when I played well, people, people noticed and I was, competitive with guys who were three or four years older than me too so somehow i had that ability to score i'd actually extend that beyond the three or four years older than you i recall in fact let me toss the question at you first what age were you when you first played the riversdale cup down in melbourne riversdale i think i actually only played riversdale once because uh whatever reason it was you know that was an amateur event i think i might have been 16 15 or 16 when I played Riversdale. I was, by the time I made the state senior teams in Australia, the way the system worked back then, I'd already left for college because I left for college when I was 17. So I only got down to Riversdale Cup once, but that was, we had a host of great events down there. You wouldn't remember me. I played in the same event, the Riversdale Cup, the one year apparently you played in it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I was one of the people gushing over the golf swing, gushing over who Adam Scott was. I was a graduate senior out of college from Texas Tech University. And I remember there was a hole, I think, early on the back nine that was a drivable par four, about 290 meters downhill with kind of a peninsula green. And I was behind you. It was a practice round and I was... Uh, clearly aware of who you were, and you proceeded to tee up driver and the silky swing from now was the silky swing from back then, and you just uh, laced it right on the green. And ever since then, I've, uh, I guess, had an affinity and hero worship for who you are and what you do. <laughs> so my envy runs deep and long, but I think a question I want to ask that leads into a conversation about technique, and that is, is there any particular player that you recognize or have some level of envy over because you're you possess one of the most envied swings in golf so i guess is it a uh, reciprocal admiration for another player yeah i think uh, you know there are bits of lots of people's games that i admire a lot you know i've been out there a long time now and i i observe other people more now than i did when i was younger and maybe that's just cuz i know know a little bit more and I can process it a bit better and not not necessarily feel intimidated that if someone's doing something better than me I can't do that there are lots of bits but of lots of players you know there are so many great players everyone has their own strengths for me at the moment I love watching Dustin Johnson swing the golf club it's so fluid and looks 
very stress-free. And although very different positions and things, it's like a modern Fred Couples to me. It just looks really easy for Dustin to generate all the club head speed at the ball every time. And I love watching Dustin hit like a soft seven iron. You know, for a guy who's so long, I think he have like a slow speed swing and make it look really good. Obviously, you know, he's got great hands on the club. He looks good with the putter in the hand a lot of the time too. So for me, Dustin is, rhythm is a big thing for me. And I think, uh, so when I see a guy like Dustin, I, you know, instantly is attractive for me to watch. One of the questions that I had for you, you might've just answered it right there, as you mentioned how you're kind of prioritizing rhythm. But I read a quote that, from you right before the players where you said that you haven't really seen your swing on video in a while. So I'm curious as to what your technical practice looks like right now and maybe why you feel like you haven't needed to use that visual feedback. Yeah, I think just a bit of background on that is probably some of my best years playing was 2011 through 2015, 16. And basically I just didn't look at my swing ever in that period of time. You know, there's like implicit trust with my coach, Brad Malone, and obviously I was playing well, so the confidence was up. But uh, like everyone, you can get nitpicky. And uh, if I start looking, I can nitpick myself right into a knot. (laughs) And really, I rely heavily on Brad to tell me that all the fundamentals and all the checkpoints are well within our parameters. And from there, you know, we try and use the talent that I've got in the field department of how my swing feels for a day to get out there and, and find my rhythm and put the club on the ball and use those feels to the best of my abilities rather than think technical on the course and take some of that natural ability away and hamper, you know, my results. So this year I haven't actually looked at my swing. So at the moment as I'm playing, I'm really solely relying on my own feels. I definitely have some trigger things in the setup to work on and and to be conscious of. But after I see a setup position, I'm really not even looking at the swing. So, you know, I just want that body to keep moving. (laughs) As I'm getting a little bit older, that's the hardest thing to do. (laughs) You're preaching to the choir there, mate. (laughs) In addition, you've led us to the next question. The next question that I kind of wanted to fire at you, and that is a question on coaching. You know, we're two coaches scratching our own itch. And with that, we're interested as all coaches out there listening will be in the following. There are a few instances instances we came across in our research on you where you're talking about your relationship with Brad. In fact, let me toss one at you. And you're quoted as saying, when he likes what he's seeing, he tells me, this is it. This is better than anybody. And then you're quoted as saying, and because that I trust him, it just pumps me up and pumps me full of confidence. So Clearly, Brad has the technical chops to guide your development and maintenance of the machine that is your golf swing. But beyond that, we find that there's so much more depth to being a world-class coach than guiding technique exclusively. And I certainly know this to be true of your former coach, Butch, as well. So the question I'm getting to through your eyes, what are the most important traits you see in the world-class coaches that you've been around? You know, personality plays such a big part in it. You know, the the reason I'll never be a good coach is, you know, I just don't think I can communicate the swing to enough people well enough. You know, I might luck in and find someone who's hearing what I'm saying, but you've got to be such a great communicator and you've got to read the person as well. And Butch was very good at that. And uh, as I worked with Butch for 10 years, he coached 
from Tiger Woods to Corey Pavin, and I watched him make all these players a little bit better. And Brad and I have a long history in knowing each other. And also I've had the opportunity to watch Brad develop as a coach from his traineeship at Wentworth, which is a fantastic club in London where he studied to he had the opportunity to go around and learn from some of the great coaches and then he started working with me in 2010 and watching him develop and he didn't just work with me but he also taught back at a club in Australia he was living at the time and watching him develop but Brad really gets it from a performance side of things not just coaching a golf swing he knows he's got to coach the person me to perform because that's really what it's all about. I can have a pretty swing and I can do everything technically sound and everything, but if that doesn't shoot in the 60s, then that's useless. Yeah, we're out of a job. So, yeah, so he's got a, he really, really gets the performance. And I, of course, Butch does too, but Brad works pretty much only with me. And uh, he has the ability to communicate, even when I'm not feeling my best, that, hey, Adam, this is good enough to get it done this week you don't you don't even need to be there uh, because he gets me to believe that I am one of the best players whether I'm swinging it great or not I have 20 years of experience at the top level I can lean on different things on different days and it, it should never be that difficult and uh, that's the kind of position that we try and keep it in and for a young guy Brad's only 37 I think you know he's very mature in his uh, approach to coaching at top level golfer i want to unpack what you said there just a little bit where you mentioned brad's there to help kind of guide you through and be performance minded when you don't feel like you have your best stuff and in doing a little bit of research i read a quote from you after shriners this year where you said that you think there are four or five weeks in the entire season where you really feel like you know what you're doing with your golf swing and that the rest is just down to a scale of having some idea, not much idea, no idea. And, and you, said, <laughs> you said that at the time you were somewhere in the middle of that moment. And knowing now that you went on to win twice shortly after that, I, I'd love to hear how you approach your game on those weeks when you don't necessarily feel like you have it, which you know, according to your quote, is going to be most weeks out of the year to some degree. Are you on those weeks adapting tactically, like how your your strategy is for the week? Or is it just another way that you maintain that high performance without 100% confidence in your swing? You have to adapt a little bit. Look, if you don't have it and you just go for it, you're not really putting the odds in your favor. And you can go down <laughs> in a ball of flames and shoot a fair few over and miss the cut. Because to win on the PGA Tour, you kind of have to be going for it a little bit because there's 20 guys every week who are going to be playing pretty good and they're playing aggressive and they're going to create a lot of chances and then 10 of them are going to make a lot and the scoring a lot of weeks is close to 20 under. That's a lot of birdies you've got to have without a lot of bogeys. Mm -hmm, sure about <laughs> and So you really got to be on. And when you're not on, you have to kind of put the odds in your favor a little bit and hope you find your rhythm once you get going out there, whether that's in the first round, second round, or third round. You know, interesting as I take found those quotes off the back of Shriners and I take myself back to about October, I think that was last year. And I'd had a really solid season, but it, it just wasn't quite feeling good. And, and a lot of these things at that time, you know, I was working on some things physically with my trainer, you know, weren't really working on too much in the golf swing, but some of the physical stuff, the body was very different in October than it was back in 
February, March that year. So some stuff was moving. And when, when you're kind of moving, it's hard to keep it all in place. Whereas right now, I feel like there's a better chance that I'll be able to keep it in that kind of, there are four or five weeks when you're really on. But then I think that kind of in control area probably now for me feels a lot bigger than it did in Las Vegas. I feel like I've got over the hump with the physical stuff that I was looking for and also some of the postural stuff. They kind of went hand in hand that Brad and I like to see are really falling into place. So hopefully I have you know a lot more weeks where I'm in control and able to just wait to see when my run comes on the course. And then there's golf. It's golf and there's a couple of weeks a year where things just don't go your way <laughs> and <laughs> you don't know what to do and you just have to shake them off and do the best you can. And a big piece of golf is beyond the physical skills, the stuff that we can't see, the underneath the bonnet, as we would say in Australia, or the underneath the hood piece, as they would say here in America. I'm not too sure what they would say in Europe or the UK, so we'll leave them to figure that out. But nonetheless, we oftentimes talk with our clients or recommend that our clients define a best performing self by identifying some of the mental traits and characteristics that they can prime or prepare themselves to get into before a round or before an event rather than leaving that stuff to chance. And you're often an avatar that we will use for someone who wants to be more cool, more calm, poised in order to play their best golf. As we watch you, and I think as anyone else watches you, that's our best guess or impression as to how you show up. But I guess what we're curious to understand is if you had to describe how you feel mentally when you're at the top of your game, if it matches that impression, that calm, poised, and polished competitor. <laughs> I guess it must be on some levels, but I think a good recent example is of where I felt very different but had the same result. It, the Australian PGA Championship in December last year, it was the week after the President's Cup and uh, played in Queensland where I live. And I was leading by one going into the last round, but I was I hadn't won a tournament for a while. I felt you know a little bit of pressure playing at home in front of a very home crowd. And I wasn't feeling great about my game. I'd played very smart for the week. I'd kind of taken the risk out of it and just chipped away. I was putting nicely and I was uneasy. It wasn't that I wasn't confident, but there was an uneasy feeling. Like I, I found going to that last round very difficult. I didn't necessarily calm down the entire round. It was a tough round. I made some bad mistakes. I hit a couple of good shots at the right time and I ended up winning the tournament. As far as being calm and poised and all that, it didn't feel like that inside, even though I probably don't walk that differently. But that was a real challenge for me. And then on the complete other side of things, about eight weeks later and my next tournament in L.A. at the Genesis, I found myself in the last group Sunday tied for the lead. But I went out there with maybe the clearest ever mind and calmest mind I've ever had going into a, that kind of position. And although the nerves developed on the first tee a little bit and then they settle down for a few holes and then it gets interesting on the golf course, all the emotions go, the calmness in my mind was incredible that day. And it really, to me, it all goes Performance all comes from the preparation, and I just had such a great little lead-in period to the season 
that I was completely confident in what I was doing. Yeah, and I think I was about to ask that question, and you just answered that, the precursors to this mental state, the psychological space that you were competing from or in when you were at Riv and were successful there was completely different to back in Australia. So I think we get the answer to the next, the, the, sorry, the question I was about to ask, which is precursors to finding that calm, poised, and ever-present, stylish Adam Scott on the golf course. But when... You look that way, like at the Aussie PGA, but in fact, underneath the hood, if we could get a microscope or some device measuring the uh, thought patterns, the internal dialogue, the stuff that's going on internally, it's actually not that way. What place do you go to? Like, What strategies for those players out there that struggle with that psychology of putting themselves into contention? Are there things that you've learned to tell yourself? Are there things that you, learn, that you lean on as a foundation to try and pull yourself through? I think there are a few key things. I mean, obviously, some of it's trial and error, and I've had plenty of years to do that. You know, I've led a fair few tournaments going into the last round and lost, and you have to analyze why, and that's where you learn from. But then you have to be able to try something the next time. You know, after some good analysis, you have to come up with your plan, and you have to be able to try that. That was one of the big things that, you know, I remember Butch saying a lot of, in early Tiger Woods days when he was really dominating. I mean, this guy wasn't afraid to try hitting the shot, you know, in tournaments. He, he'd practice it and then he'd go out and use it. And it's also the same mental approach. You need discipline out there. You need to be able to control your mind. And I get my discipline from working is what I feel like, whether it's making sure I do my gym session doing the extra putting session, doing the practice, doing it's all in the preparation. The mental discipline comes from being tough on myself with those things. And then the little triggers, the way I was trying to calm myself for the Australian PGA was just telling myself, I just have to play around the golf, just like the last three days. I didn't feel like I was playing amazing. Let's just do the same thing. It's a tough course. You'll come out on top. You know, and the advantage I have in, in the Australian PGA situation is I'm probably the most experienced player there. So I felt like I was trying to give myself some confidence somehow. I'm the guy here this week. You know, I'm the man. The difference going to Riviera is I'm playing with Rory McIlroy, number one in the world on Sunday in the final group. And I can't truly tell myself, you know, I'm the most experienced and <laughs> best player in the group. But going to Riviera, you know, I didn't have those worries so much because the the spotlight wasn't really on me it was probably much more on Rory uh, going in there and I just felt like you know I just keep doing what I'm doing I'm playing really well I love the course everything about Riviera was very positive but uh, you know I have a few things on the course you know I like to walk slow I like to breathe slow you know even just spending 200 yards walking off the tee focusing on that clears the mind of thinking about the mind racing away from that situation, just thinking about one foot going in front of the other or the breath going in and the ribs expanding and the breath going out and the ribs <laughs> contracting, you know. But for a couple of hundred meters, just to slow yourself down. And, uh, you know, some people get slow if they get under pressure. Some people get fast. I'm, I'm a faster player. I remember a long time ago Butch identifying that I was walking way too fast around the green, reading my putt in those situations. And he said, you just, you really need to slow that down a little bit and uh, get control of your thoughts. So I have a couple of little triggers like that, but I also feel like the real big one is leaning on that 
years of experience. I've been there so many times. It's worked out a lot of times for me, and I can lean on that, and I like I like that feeling. That's why winning is such a great habit to have because it's hard to do. And if and if you can get in that habit and you can keep getting wins year after year, it's going to be hard for someone else to get on top of you. I think that's brilliant advice for our listeners as they hear kind of how you deal with the maybe doubt or pressure within a given round or a tournament. But I want to talk a little bit broader and discuss kind of the the natural ebbs and flows that every career in professional golf has to it. While you know, you've maintained this elite high performance over nearly 20 years now with only twice dropping outside of the top 50. And then, you know, you, you fought your way right back to the top 10. Was there ever any doubt or fear that you experienced during those longer stretches? And are, did you use similar tactics to kind of overcome those brief little periods of it's not fair to even call it a slump because there are a million players who, who would sign up for that right now, but <laughs> relative to your high level of your standard of performance is a slight drop or an ebb in that flow. It is relative. And you wish you could tell yourself that when it's happening, because it feels like, you know, it's hard for panic not to set in when you're seeing it slide the wrong way for a few months at a time. You know, it gets very frustrating. It's hard not to try harder. And sometimes that's not really good. I think you really have to have some honest conversations with yourself at some point and reset the goals and look at what you're doing. And and when the confidence is low, it's hard to change what you're doing, I think. And that's tricky because the low confidence and the poor performance can go hand in hand. But if you want to keep poor performing, keep doing the same thing, <laughs> it's time to make a change. And having the confidence to do that is tough. And that's where the team around you really needs, you need to know they're going to support and they're helping you make the right call if you can't identify it yourself. And in fairness, 2009 was kind of my worst season on the PGA Tour. I did win the Australian Open at the end of the year, but just before that, I changed. I stopped working with Butch Harmon, which was a really tough call for me to make. I've worked with him since I was 19 years old and we'd worked together 10 years and he'd been He'd been kind of my guardian in the United States since I'd moved over in a sense. And, you know, he'd gotten to a different point in his career where he was kind of slowing down and traveling a little bit less at that time. And I was really struggling and I needed a bit more and I felt that was a very hard decision. And then I started to work with Brad and, and that change really sparked something. You know, it was fresh and new and, and things got going. And that's not that Butch couldn't do that. He'd managed me really well up until that point. But at that point, I just, I needed something more, something that I don't think Butch was able to offer me at that point. So that was a good call and it worked out. And and then again, maybe, uh, I don't know, it was it 2018, I was slipping a bit and uh, I hadn't worked with Brad for a couple of years. And, you know, it was not that hard to figure out what's the recipe that works for Adam here? You know, this isn't rocket science. This is just, you know, simple stuff. Let's go and talk to Brad and, and see what he has to say and get an opinion because he knows me so well. So uh, they were pretty easy calls for me to make when, when I finally did make it. It's funny, though. We're all stubborn and, you know, it probably went further than it should have for me a couple of years ago. But there's a million moving parts always. And that's that's the hardest thing. The one thing that you're not taught early on is how to balance all the moving parts all the time. And, and you don't want to complicate it more than you have to. 
One of the more common questions that we get from Altus clients and listeners is how do I spin it like a tour player? Well, the first step is to treat your equipment like a tour player, and that means that you've got the right golf ball and you've got fresh grooves. Visit Vokey.com to see the spin research that Bob Vokey and his team have conducted to better understand how grooves wear over time. After 75 to 100 rounds of golf, you owe it to yourself to test your grooves to make sure that they're still getting maximum spin from your wedges. Find a fitter at Vokey.com for a spin test soon. You mentioned earlier in the conversation about uh, learning from experience, the trial and error process of succeeding when pressure comes. And what I want to ask specifically is adversity and the triumph that ultimately follows when you uh, learn from that experience. And so can you speak to the victory at Augusta and then how that victory was built on the foundation of what happened just nine months before or eight months before at Litham? Yeah, I mean, it's the best example for me. Lytham is not as painful a memory as you might think for me. I mean, as I sit here and think, I just played so well that week. Maybe as in control as I can remember for about 68 holes. You know, I felt like it was my golf tournament. It was all on my club the last few holes. And that was the first time in my career. And at that point, it had been a 12 or 13 year career that I'd played like that in a major championship. It had taken me that long, you know, to figure it all out, which was frustrating, but I was so happy that it was like that. And then to bogey the last four holes, it was almost a bit of a blur to me. And uh, I kind of remember feeling numb afterwards because it was so good the whole week. Everything was so good. And I didn't have the trophy <laughs> standing there at the end. And I think part of the numbness was I can't believe what just unfolded in the last 45 minutes, but also, you know, I was gutted as well. I wasn't quite sure how to react and I was really gutted and and more than ever in my career, I don't know where I was in my head at that point, but in the lead up to Lytham off the back of the US Open at Olympic, I'd never practiced harder. You know, I just got in my head, like, if I hit two bags of balls a day, I'm ready. And I and I just went for it for about three or four weeks leading up. And then I was on, like, this war path to Lytham. And then that happened, but I was gutted to lose. But basically, that war path just went until Augusta then. It was like nothing, you know, until I win something big, this is not going to stop. It was, which happens to me occasionally, but not for such a long period of time. I knew I was ready to win something big at that point, And I just kept going. I kept pushing myself. You know, I felt like it's there. It's right there. It has to happen. You just keep doing what you're doing. And it, and it fell into place at Augusta. So Augusta, although Lytham was gutting, it led me to become the first Aussie to win at Augusta, which is really going to be what my whole career comes down to, whether I win more majors or not. It was a big deal for us Aussies. And uh, off the back of, I learned so much off Lytham that I used at Augusta. And it's incredible how that adversity was so motivating rather than deflating. I want to pull on a little bit more nuanced thread. And that that thread is you'd mentioned that after Litham, uh, Sunday night, Monday, and I read that you went back to Switzerland with your dad and 
many of the quotes were centered around the process of dealing with and how quickly you dealt with what happened that Sunday. And you just mentioned a word that it seemed like everything was a blur. And I then jumped to the reading research that I've done on psychological state of flow experience where time seems to slow down. And what you're describing there is the exact opposite of that, where time seemed to move faster. Everything was a blur. And what I'm wondering is, was there something specific that you either did or told yourself at Augusta to ensure that that was less likely to happen? Or does it go back to what you were talking about that dated all the way from pre-US Open Olympic Club 2012, where you were just on this mission? And that mission meant that the more calluses you earned, the more sweat equity that you put in, that gave you the identity that ultimately in the most high-pressure situations you were going to succeed the more you put yourself in that position? It's probably a bit of a combination of all those things. But as I got to the end at Lytham there, it was my first real time that I was in control to win this major championship. And I think at some point in those last four holes, and I don't think there's an exact moment, that got in my head. Maybe it was after bogeying 15 and 16, and it was in the shot into 17. I, you know, at some point, the nerves or question came in my head. And that's why I think, but, you know, then analyzing it afterwards, I was less worried about the mental side of things. And to me, I looked at it and thought, wow, you had like a six footer on five or six footer on 15 for par. You had like a two and a half footer on 16 for par that I missed. I didn't hold, it was a 20 footer on 17 for par and then a nine footer on 18. And I didn't make one of them. And my big thing that I look at in almost every tournament, unless you're so far in front, it doesn't matter. To win a golf tournament, you're going to have to make a putt in the last few holes (laughs) somewhere, (laughs) you know, and I just didn't. And somehow at the end of it, I sat there and thought, wow, you know, it's just, it's as simple as that. The only one other thing that I looked at that really bothered me was the shot into 17 from the middle of the fairway to a left pin with a six iron, I think. And I had the entire world out to the right. And it's not the only time I've hooked a six iron. I hooked a six iron in the water at the players in 04. (laughs) So it's like, it's kind of the annoying shot for me. And I remember working on that with Brad afterwards too. And if you want to look at, you know, some sweat equity, then go and watch the six iron I hit into the 10th of the playoff in Augusta because off the hanger lie to the back left pin, I held the six iron up. It was beautiful. <laughs> it's the best shot I've ever hit in my life, especially given the situation. I mean, the distance control, it was such a good shot. And so, you know, to go from like the worst kind of horrible, soft, weak swing there on seven or the 71st hole of the Open to the playoff at Augusta is kind of what it's all about as a as a competitor and, and seeing what hard work and some focus and determination can do. Hey, you mentioned to win a golf tournament, you've got to make a putt coming down the stretch. And in 2019, you finished with a positive strokes game putting for the first time since 2014. And then you've been even better for our season so far in 2020. So I'm curious as to what the technical or mental improvements that have led to that increase in performance lately? I mean, for me, putting is the most sensitive area of my game, I think, probably mentally. 
And, you know, I've putted many different ways over the years. And obviously when the anchoring ban came in, it kind of forced my hand to change something. And I decided to change back to a short putter with like a claw grip. And that had some success for a little while. And then that, you know, those feelings wore off and the fiddling around started, which is never good for me. But going back to the longer style putter non-anchored last may was the big call i mean when i was anchoring it to then non-anchor it it felt weird at the time but after two years of not putting with it it felt really good going back to it it felt fresh again and to be honest with you i think it's actually better not anchored than anchored and my results are starting to show that what do you think that i think it actually just kind of frees you up certainly on the mid-range parts a bit more. The anchoring bit kind of, on as you made a bigger stroke going from outside 10 feet to maybe 30 feet, the ones that you hope to make, you know what I mean? That they're real bonus, they're real bonus putts. If you can make a couple of, two or three of them around, you're really picking up some strokes. It just felt like with it anchored, it wasn't like in the way on the through stroke. Of course, when I was putting with it anchored, it didn't feel in the way because that's what I was used to. But now when you go with it non-anchored and floating, it feels like it's much shorter. It's not in the way. You don't have to get your body out of the way. You just make a better stroke. And I feel like that was what was missing from my putting for quite a few years. Even the years when I was anchoring it, I just wasn't – I was really good. I felt solid uh, 10 feet in, but – where are the bonus ones, the ones that you really, really hope to make? And they've been going in, and that makes a big difference, obviously. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned something earlier in that answer, though, that kind of piqued my ears, and that's the short-term gains that you experienced when you went back to a short part of that ultimately wore off. Do you think that's actually something that you can leverage in learning, like periodically changing and hitting the reset button by doing something different, even that, even if doing something different only exists in practice or casual play back at your home club? Yeah, I think for me, the putting now, you know, I understand myself a lot better. But over the last few years, I mean, I even played some tournaments with two putters in the back. I had a long one and a short one. But I pretty much do most of my practice not with the long putter that may sound weird but all these casual rounds i play here i'm putting with anything you know one day i've got an arm lock one day i've got a conventional looking putter ping or newport two style i've got uh, you know mallet styles anything else but i then go back and kind of reset with the long one You know, so it might be a few days of something else and then you go back to the long one and it has that fresh, nice, new feeling to me. But the other ones have that feeling too when I pick it up. So it's all all good fun, all positive kind of feelings coming in, not like, oh, you know, this is starting to rub off. (laughs) Yeah, this is stale. This is getting boring. And maybe that's all it is with me. So, you know, I don't mind that at all. I think my, you know, what I really figured out in this off season more than any other year was like my recipe to get me to putt good. And that certainly showed up in LA. Yeah. So we went down that putting thread because you helped us identify that the best players in the world, the ones that are winning tournaments know how to make those 
putts coming down the stretch. And one of our, our big goals with this conversations that we have anytime we have a great player like you is to unpack more of those, those ways that the best players in the world have found to separate themselves. And, you know, you've been ranked number one in the world and I tried to count, but I, I kind of gave up. You've been in the top 10 in the world for over 400 weeks. That's as close as, as I could come. And so no one's better qualified than you to answer this because you, you play, not only are you, but you also are paired every week with the best players in the world. But if you had to give us one technical or skill piece that you feel like is a common denominator among that 1% and then one mental piece that is common uh, among that group that our listeners could listen to and say, okay, that's something that I really need to, to prioritize in my own development. What's a little underrated is how good everyone is, I think, just <laughs> generally. I mean, the standard is incredible across the board. And then these guys who can separate themselves, there's always been talk of, of like some people have it and some people don't. And these guys who can win tournaments have it. They have the ability to get out of their own way and just perform. And I think as you become a professional, you obviously develop your skill set and you get better and better. But some of that can also actually be getting in your own way. Then there's the playing is where you've got to get out of your own way. And the best example is Rory. I mean, he's got to be playing the most free of anybody out there. I really believe that. He looks like he just freewheels it every week. And his game's obviously in a lovely spot. He's had about 20 top fives in a row. I know he'd like to throw a couple of wins in there, but it's almost inevitable that it's going to happen. But he's just freewheeling it. He's really out of his own way. It looks like he knows what he's doing. And he's just going to let it happen. I think that's the big, biggest thing for anybody is at whatever level they are, however much they're thinking about the game of golf is like when you walk onto the course, you just have to go and play. And the expectation level just needs to be realistic to then manage you know, how you've done. But I think when I look at these guys, some people just have that ability and that want to win you know brooks kepka is a great example from the last few years i mean he wants to win big tournaments and that you can tell he shows up to win and he just gets out of his way own way he's prepared however he does i don't know anything about how brooks prepares but he shows up and he's slots driver over the corner on the first hole at beth page black i mean it's incredible to be able to do that. I mean, everyone would rather go down the left where the fairway is and he's just <laughs> pounding it at the green. I mean, you know, he's he's getting out of his own way at the biggest possible moment. That's all the top players striving to do that. There's a lot we could continue to discuss on that front. Um, a lot of it, in my opinion, just from these conversations and also the experience in your world is the freedom and flexibility to make those choices, knowing that you have more opportunities than just this shot or just this round. It's also the courage that you demonstrate in putting yourself in these situations and the dialogue that's going on in your head to challenge yourself to overcome the doubt, overcome the fear or anxiety that eventually grips every player, no matter the level. And if you look at the example of Brooks Kepka, Brooks Kepka learned how to win. 
I learned how to win on the Challenge Tour and then ultimately the European Tour. And one wonders how much of Brooks Kepka's success in the major championships is because of the narrative that's so commonly discussed right now of he shows up in these big events and he tells himself that he shows up in these big events and it becomes this circular self-fulfilling prophecy that I think we'd both agree on is part of that mental challenge of convincing ourselves that we can and we will do these things, if not the first time, then the second, if not the second, then the third. It's a brilliant line of conversation to go down that we could probably continue to pull on for many, many more minutes, if not hours. But you've been amazing with your time. And you've we, we have quick hit questions that we like to ask at the conclusion of these things. And you've already actually answered quite a few of them. One of them is the shot that you're remembered for, the shot that you're most proud of. And it's that hanging lie shot that you hit at Augusta on number 10 in the playoff that you held it from going left the shot that got you in trouble, the left shot at, at Litham. So we've answered that one. We've checked that one off. You've also answered a question relative to things that are underrated in practice and performance. But what things do you think are overrated? What things do you see your competitors or those players that are, have aspiration to be great? They're either mini tour or nationwide, web.com, Corn Ferry Tour players. I got the uh, sponsor right there at the end. I'll edit the other part out. <laughs> what do you think they're doing that they are prioritizing too much? I think probably technique. I think it's really, you know, taken over the modern game. That's because we're in the information age. There's so much more available, you know, than when you and I grew up playing Cam. I mean, it was it was very much old wives' tale coaching <laughs> <laughs> somewhat with, yep. with some experience, but some good embellished stories to go with that, which, which were fantastic to get. And then, you know, you just learn how to play golf on the golf course and you learn how to score and you just get it done. I mean, there's so much incredible information available today, but I think, you know, and it's personality types. I mean, how far you go down those rabbit holes can can hold you back a little bit because it can stop you from playing golf and it gets you playing this um, this game that looks like that looks like golf or it seems like golf but it's really not. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think there's you know for everyone you've just got to marry the right thing. I think probably for me because I'm not like that. I see too much technique and too much practice going on at tournaments. And uh, you know I know. Hey, not everyone's Adam Scott and doing things the way I do or want to do things the way I do. But if you're talking about peak performance, a lot happens in the preparation and you can only do so much Monday, Tuesday and a Wednesday at a golf tournament. So as you go out to the golf course, another quick hit question that I like to ask every time we talk to anybody is to understand their view on swing thoughts. And you just kind of said that the overrated piece is the technical piece. So does that mean as you're over a ball, you you said earlier that you checked out your setup. If setup is good, you feel like you can just swing. Is there a rhythm-based swing thought that you will depend on often, or is it mostly target-related, or are there occasions where you're just blank over the ball and it's just time to swing? I generally have one, maybe two thoughts or, or words that I use that can change too, and they're not working, but uh, one or two, I mean, sometimes... I think a lot of it's visualization, even though I've never really thought about working on or working with visualization as much as like you see some guys closing their eyes and really visualizing, but you know, I'm doing it with my eyes open. But, you know, I often think about my backswing being as slow as in B Park's backswing. And that's what I'm thinking of. Like in B is my, (laughs) is my thought over the ball or something like that. Just because that's going to promote the rhythm. If I think about perfect rhythm, I, you know, I don't know how I'm going to do that. <laughs> it's like, if you think about keeping your head still, it's really hard to keep your head still. 
you have to have, or for me, I have to have that visualization of watching NB Park or, you know, young Ernie <laughs> from 1994 pulling that club away to kind of get my nice smooth takeaway going. And then from there, there's no thought, you know, it's just like a trigger to promote slow rhythm if that's what I'm interested in that day. Last quick hit before we close. You've been amazing with your time and the conversation has been beyond our uh, wildest dreams in terms of insights that you've shared with us and therefore our listeners. Something that we like to ask just to pay credit or pay uh, worship, I guess, is maybe a different way to say it. Uh, Give credit where it's due is to your parents and those that nurtured you young And we've talked a little bit, we've touched briefly on nature and nurture, and we learn through our experiences, and some people feel like we're born with it, and we can unpack what this it from a theoretical standpoint. But also, I think that for the junior golfers out there and the parents that are probably listening, it's nice to hear what your parents did right. They did a lot of things right. Look, obviously, they are golfers themselves. So I was around the golf course early, which is obviously helpful. I think once I started getting, I got a bit serious about golf when I was 11. You know, I got a handicap. I became a member of the club and then I could spend the weekends there. Then when I started getting, it was just fun through that point. And even when I was 11 and 12, I was still playing footy and I was still playing some tennis. But by the time I was 13, I was getting good at golf and there were a lot of junior golf tournaments to play and it was I was focusing on that. So at that point, it became a bit of a commitment to my parents. They're driving me, they're paying for me. You don't realize you don't realize any of this. We take it for granted, don't we? <laughs> and you're just lying on the couch watching cartoons, but you got a tournament on Sunday or whatever it is. I remember my dad, they were never pushy. They never pushed me to go practice, but he always used to just walk past and say, well, that's another day before you make it, (laughs) (laughs) you know, before you make it great. And that was the right kind of pushing for me. You know, they knew me well, they were my parents, but they really never pushed me. They probably just helped nurture my passion for the game. My dad coached me until I saw Butch. He was, he's a PGA member and he coached me until I was 19. Obviously, he set me up with some nice fundamentals, but he nurtured my passion for the game. But also some of the biggest credit I can give him is, you know, he then handed me over to Butch at 19 when I was one of the best amateur players in the world and said, you know, this guy will probably know how to take you to the top of the pro game rather than him selfishly wanting to do it when he he could have. Uh, There's nothing saying he couldn't have, but... uh, you know, it was obviously a big opportunity for me meeting Butch Harmon. So um, I think they're the kind of things I somewhat understand as a parent now having two small kids, but very big decisions when you're letting your kids go <laughs> a little bit. So, you know, I'm incredibly thankful and uh, we all enjoy getting to have a game of golf when we do get to catch up. My best memory is playing with mum and dad at Augusta a few years ago is a great memory for me and I can imagine makes them feel proud of the way they did things with me and my sister. Beautiful. Adam, thank you so much for spending an hour with us. Uh, we probably didn't conceal it very well, but we're both big fans. And, and, <laughs> no, no, and we, we looked forward to having the chat. It was fun just to sit down and, and do some research and to get ready to prepare to to make the most out of this opportunity to chat with you. Uh, one of the quotes that I read, the more recent ones was from Riviera, where you said that the the next five years could potentially be your best years on tour. And if your play leading up to our break was any indication, that's certainly true. We'll be cheering hard for that to happen. Looking forward to getting done with this break and cheering you on. But thanks again for spending a little bit of time with us. 
No worries. Thank you, guys. You certainly did some nice research. Well done. I'm <laughs> impressed. I'm impressed and uh, look forward to see you both back out there soon, hopefully. Cheers, Adam. Thanks, mate. Bye-bye. Okay, have a great one. You Bye. too. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. We're also pretty active on Instagram, so follow at Altus Performance, and you can also follow on Twitter at Team Altus. If you haven't done so, please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review, share it with others, and be sure to stay tuned to future episodes of Earn Your Edge. Thanks for listening.